I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, my friend Keo Stark. It's never in the interests of the power structure for people to relate well to each other. This is a kind of encouragement of the ability to get together to make things happen. Keo, who I met back when she was teaching stranger studies at NYU, is going to share with us the secret power of talking with strangers. Maybe our parents were wrong. So I've been avoiding it, not uh, for any real reason other than the uh, asynchronicity of this program, but I'm going to finally address uh, Donald Trump and this bizarre election that we're in. And I, I think I'll do it once and then we can talk after it's all over. You know, the, the thing that people aren't quite getting is that Donald Trump really is the quintessentially digital candidate, you know, that we could call him almost a, a digigenic candidate in that he is is so consonant with the values and structure of a digital media environment. Now, without getting into the whole sort of McLuhan media studies thing about media environments, most basically, you know, we've lived till really recently in a television age, a television media environment. 
and the the values that television engendered were the kind of simultaneous whole world event. You know, television was the medium through which we watched Neil Armstrong step on the moon, through which we got satellite television. You know, television and its culture was really about there being one big world. It dovetailed just perfectly with globalism and global markets. You know, the the peak of the television environment would be uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, standing at the Brandenburg Gate of the Berlin Wall and saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, and that works on TV because through TV, when rock and roll and the Beatles, it seemed like we were just going to be one big world. And of course, you know, toward the end of the television media environment, we got some of the bad parts of globalism. You know, we had the WTO protests, which were protesting against what happens when you have, you know, transnational corporations, when you have all of these giant trade agreements, when you lose your countries and you're all part of, you know, Eurozone or NAFTA and these giant entities that no longer have human scale or connection to our, our society. So we started to see, uh, you know, some of the, the, the terror of living in one big connected planet. No, but digital technology is not connecting in that way. It's not one big satellite from which we see the whole Earth. Digital technology is very discreet. You know, we're each in our own algorithmically configured reality tunnel on Google or Facebook or wherever we are. I mean, most people don't even realize that, you know, your Google search is going to come up different than my Google search. You know, your Google page is configured for you. They're looking for the things that, well, we could say it nicely, the things that you really want. But what they're looking for is to make you more you, to get you further and further into almost a uh, uh, predictable caricature of yourself in order to deliver you and that perfect consumer profile of you up to its uh, marketers, up to the market researchers that are using it. But the Internet is discreet. It's about divisions. And that's why we get, instead of uh, Reagan saying, tear down this wall, we get Donald Trump saying, let's build a wall between us and Mexico. This is leaking. It's strange. The sense of us and them. You know, wait a minute. Which is the one and which is the zero? Who is the Mexican? Who's the American? You're saying if some guy crosses over and he's illegal and then he stays here for a while and then he's legal. What is that? That's... It's very confusing to a digital sensibility that really wants to see, no, there's those guys over there and us over here. So, yeah, you'll put up the wall. Or remember when he was uh, trying to pick on Cruz, saying that Cruz isn't really an American. It's like, what's an American if your mom is born here and your dad's there and you are there, but they're sitting? Is that really, are you on our side of the boundary or on their side of the boundary? You know, it's about all of those discrete boundary conditions. The other uh, way that Trump is so digital, of course, is all of his rhetoric, everything sounds like it's coming from, you know, the comment section on an article. These are, are these are the most trollish, internet-y comments, you know, the, the badly behaved kind of style of internet rhetoric. That's what he's doing. And it doesn't matter if it changes from one day to the next to the next to the next. You know, he's not a candidate with a coherent strategy emanating from him. It's more like 
If you remember when Charlie Sheen became an internet sensation, he became an internet sensation not because he was doing anything in particular, but because he knew how to sort of jump into the standing wave that was culture. You know, he was more of a vessel than he was an originator of things. So, you know, that's where that's where Trump is. He's he's uh, reflecting a cultural zeitgeist more than he's actually uh, initiating it. You know, he is of the moment. The one thing in his message that he does have, which is, you know, make America great again, is really relying on the other main bias of digital technology, which is memory. You know, the television was a hallucinatory reality. That's what Marshall McLuhan said about it. It makes hallucinations. It takes the hallucinations from in your head and puts them in screens. Digital technology is is not hallucinatory in that way. Digital technology is built on memory. All of the chips we use, everything, those are all just memory. That's how it calculates is with memory. And, of course, we also know the Internet remembers all. You know, well, we can't access it all the time, but everything you do is recorded as as if it were, you know, etched in the side of the Parthenon. That's what the Internet does. The Internet is memory banks. So the, the agenda of an Internet candidate, of a digital candidate, is going to be memory. You know, that's why we see the Brexit in England, because people are remembering what it was like when England was Great Britain or was just England or wasn't part of this weird, messy, global Euro thing. And Trump is saying, make America great again. He's hearkening back to a a false memory, but a memory nonetheless of when America was something else. Let's go back. Let's 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 get that memory back. The problem for him is oddly digital, too. You know, I feel like candidates from the past, candidates from the television environment, the good ones, were able to imagine what those television viewers were like, what they were thinking in their homes. You know, Reagan could really talk to people in their homes, even though he couldn't see them through the camera because he was an actor. Bill Clinton could do it because he was a child, a baby boomer of the television generation. He understood how to do that Oprah Winfrey-like thing and really connect with people in their homes. Donald Trump is not, even though I know he's a reality TV star, reality television is actually kind of post-internet television. It's nonfiction television. It doesn't have the same sense of narrative as real TV. But Donald Trump can't see the people at home. He can't see the people who are watching on television. The people he sees are the people in the room with him, the people at the conventions with him. You know, Donald Trump is a brilliant salesperson. What he does for a living is sits in rooms with people. He has no money or has only debt and manages to say whatever it is those people in the room want for him to get the next round of money or get his name on the building or get something else. He's a pure salesperson and great salespeople, and I've been been bamboozled by them, even just, you know, trying to buy a mattress or something, they know how to play you. They can see you and they can say the things to you that you want to hear. So Donald Trump is really good at doing that with whoever is in the room, which is why his rhetoric has gotten worse and worse or scarier and scarier to those of us watching on TV, because he's speaking to the people who are coming to the rally. He's speaking to the people who are in the room and they're angry people who, you know, they might be angrier, they might be racist, might be xenophobic, they might be poor, they they might hate Hillary, whatever it is. He's going to reflect that back because in some ways he is forging 
real human rapport with those other human beings in those rooms and working them up. He is there with them. If he could see us, he'd be saying something else. He'd be selling us on what we want, but he can't see us. He can't experience us. He doesn't actually get us. And this hand thing, really, it's because we're not in the room with him. He's actually, in some ways, a more real-time, more spontaneous, more alive candidate than Hillary. Hillary does see the TV audience. She She's speaking to that, but not connecting to those in the world right in front of him. You know, And that's really what today's program is about. It's about this real world that we're in. You know, the, the Trump supporters in my town, uh, you know, there was a guy this weekend who was actually, uh, he was waving a Confederate flag in front of our local flea market. And people were really scared of him, you know, like, oh, this is like a dangerous Nazi guy now. What are we going to do? And, and I just went up to him and spoke with him and asked him, oh, I asked, I started, I said, so you from the South? You know, <laughs> and I found out, you know, I asked him if he's a Leonard Skinner fan. He actually had no idea what the Confederate flag means. He thought it meant the United States or something and, and that it was pro-Trump. And, you know, he was really confused reaching out to him as a person, you know, not on the phone, you know, reaching out and touching someone, but, but in real life, Reaching out to a stranger, and not just someone I don't know, but someone from whom I'm estranged, you know, I was able to find out this guy wants the same things we do. He wants to feel safe. You know, he wants to make a living. He wants people to like him. He wants to feel like he has a purpose in life. You know, the things that he wants are actually human. It's just the facts that are all so screwed up. He's just working from a different stack of facts. And I... I genuinely believe we can't let the fact that we may be right you know get in the way of our sense of common purpose you know three or four or maybe even five out of ten people in america are supporting donald trump they like what they hear there's something about it that's appealing to something inside them Um, and we need to be able to connect with those people and the only way to do it I think, is on a personal level, is on a one-to-one basis with these other people. Uh, And that's why today, what we're going to learn about is how to connect with others. We are Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens and online at teamhuman.fm. I'm Andy Bickelmom, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Astrid Taylor, and I'm on Team Human. Hi, I'm Michael White, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Thomas Koki, and I'm on Team Human. Today, we welcome my dear friend and personal idol, <laughs> Keo Stark. She's the author of books and a thinker of deep thoughts, yet seemingly incapable of becoming disparaged. She's <laughs> all about learning but understands it in a pretty counterintuitive way. Her independent learning handbook, Don't Go Back to School, argued just that. And now she's a recovering TED speaker and author of When Strangers Meet. So I really wanted you to call this book originally, I wanted you to call it um, Do Talk to Strangers. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Just because, you know, the whole parent thing and don't, this is the opposite. Because you're basically advising us to connect with those we might otherwise ignore or worse even reject 
You know, so what would be your advice to start off to listeners who may be afraid of Trump supporters? You know, should should they go to a rally and talk to people? What what do we do to get over that? And is there potential energy in, in embracing those people on some level? Well, I would say please don't go to a Trump rally and try to talk to people because there's a sort of collective energy of hatred, as far as I understand it, that you don't want to get in the middle of right. as a as somebody who's curious and interested in humans. So I think what you do is you start with individuals. And for me, that's really the core of this anyway, is connecting with people as individuals, even if it's completely fleeting and momentary. You know, you're seeing someone, you're acknowledging them, you're being acknowledged, and then they become an individual to you. And if you talk to them longer, then there's a whole other sort of set of operations. But if you want to try to talk to Trump supporters to understand where they're coming from or why they believe the things that they supposedly believe, find somebody like a person you can talk to by themselves and then be prepared to listen. I think what you want to do is ask someone questions about why they believe the things that they believe and when they first started to believe those things, because then you can start to understand a little bit about where they're coming from. You may still totally disagree with them, and I I hope I'm allowed to say I hope you will still totally disagree with them, but you're going to understand them as a person who has beliefs and has come by them in some way. I mean, it's interesting because... You know, the whole point of this show has been, you know, team, human, and forging solidarity. But in a certain way, you're arguing against that sort of groupthink and about the power of the one-on-one connection versus the joining the team or the group or the thing. Well, I think that the individual connection is a first step. And again, in the context of trying to understand someone who doesn't share your views— And that can be a prelude to trying to have an open conversation with them about their views. If you're listening and absorbing and, and, you know, taking in what their perspective is, then you can start to have a conversation with them. I really do believe in collective power and that ultimately getting more people to talk to strangers as a way of connecting and treating each other as individuals is how we get everybody together. I mean, it's weird. Now it it feels as if even people who are like us are strangers. You know, if you, you're a goth person and you're sitting on the subway and there's another goth person across the way, it's almost like the fact that we have identical piercings or whatever, it's still not enough to broach the, hey. Oh, that's interesting. Is that, you know, there's a general sort of sociological observation that people who have something in common and are in the minority are very likely to acknowledge each other in some way. And That's I talk nice. about this. That's encouraging. Yeah. They at least yeah. nod. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, and this can be I talk to a lot of people about the situations that they encounter that. And it's like dads at the playground where most of the caregivers are women. It's black people in a place that's mostly white people. It's white people in a place that's mostly black people. It's women at conferences full of men. But I think your point is well taken, you know, that sometimes feeling a similarity to someone is not enough to make you feel like it's worth connecting. Well, these days, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like, you know, maybe maybe in the old days you saw another long hair, yeah. you know, at an Eisenhower, you know, group <laughs> thing. And it's like, oh, dude, you know, or you find another stoner, find another counterculture person, sure. whatever it is that's different. Or I'm sure two businessmen at a hippie thing. It's like, oh, good, another suit. Right. My God, look at these children. Right. Um, so that, but I feel like that almost isn't even there, that we're afraid of each other 
on an on an essential level now. Are you talking about the context of like you're on the subway or in a cafe yeah. and you see the person? So one of the reasons that you feel that way is that we have a sort of general baseline expectation of what sociologists call civil inattention, which is we're civil to each other. We might nod and uh, and then we leave each other alone, particularly in public space that's shared, like a cafe or the subway. So I can't speak to why that possibly used to be easier to um, get around, but I think that's the thing that's operating that's stopping you. Yeah, the presumption of... The presumption that people want to be left alone. Right. I mean, this is kind of, I mean, you allude to it, sort of the Irving Goffman stuff. Exactly. You know, he's one of an old... uh, uh, social and media theorist. He looked at environments that are created and, and, and the sort of social implications of them, but how, you know, these all these rules emerge mm-hmm. and then we, most of us just follow them. But right. I guess rules are, are, rules perpetuate new ones. Well, and know. the rules are basically, they're unwritten. Um, we behave as though we have agreed to them, even though nobody ever tested us on them. It's like grammar that we know without realizing we know it. It's sort of interpersonal grammar, essentially. Well, it's a cultural social operating system. Right, That's exactly. so embedded, we don't even acknowledge that it's right. there. But, you know, what I want to do then, and it sounds like what you're talking about doing, is, is let's hack that. Let's hack that to make our world a better place. And the part that's really, to me, that's profound about it is, you know, I, I remember in 1968 or 69, Tim Leary did this uh, these Berkeley lectures. And this girl who had had her first big psychedelic experience got up and said, oh, I've seen the world as one. I've got the whole, I understand it all now. What do I do now? Mm -hmm. And he said, find the others. And of course we take that to mean find the other people who've had this experience so that you can have solidarity with them and all that. But what you're saying is, no, 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 find the others. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Find the others in the academic sense. Right. Who's different from you? What yeah. crossed that bridge? Yeah. And that's so profound. Yeah. Well, and, the, you know, the thing with the unwritten rules is that you mostly see them or become aware of them when they're broken. And I am a breaker of unwritten rules in general. You have to be careful when you do that not to be too disrespectful. You also, if you're a dude, you have to be careful in how you might do that with women just to stay out of the realm of sexual harassment on the street. But, yeah, I mean, I'm all for breaking the rules every once in a while in a in a very genuine way. And sometimes you get completely rejected. Sometimes you get looked at like you're crazy. And sometimes you have great connections with people. But ultimately, it makes you more human. I mean, it's it's a more spontaneous, happy little way to move through life. Yeah, for sure. Every time I tell people about this, either they already do it and they're just dazzled to have language for it or... They don't. And they're like, I'm going to try this. And come, they come back to me and they say, wow, the, you know what? This is really changing the way I feel when I walk down the street. And I don't mean it in a Pollyanna sense of like, talk to one stranger and you'll change your life and the whole world. But I really do see it affecting people. Well, and affecting their, their relationship to gosh. I mean, we could we can go in the market direction. The more you're connected to other people, the less you need to buy stuff as a substitute for your human connection. So it's destabilizing and disruptive. Or yes. the more you can forge solidarity with other workers, you know, the more you have a chance to unionize and to fight the power. And Yeah, I mean, it's never in the interests of the power structure for people to relate well to each other, essentially. 
And so this is a kind of, you know, tacit encouragement of the ability to get together, the sort of preconditions of people being able to relate to each other and get together to make things happen. And you would have thought that this would have been the the heritage of a of a digital age, because now we're moving away from broadcast top down, looking all up at the stars, and instead we're looking at one another across networks. Yeah. But I guess we weren't really seeing one another. We're just seeing each other's words or something. Yeah. And I think as the internet and social media have evolved, and I don't want to say matured because that's not the right word, um, we've become more and more performative than I think when it started, when people started connecting that way, it was pretty genuine. And like web rings were pretty innocent and genuine. Mm -hmm. And now people are much more performing themselves, much more putting up the life they wish they had from the moments of their life that are are the way they wish they were all the time. And so it's it's not very genuine anymore. No. But it can be. Boo-hoo. But it can become that. I mean, mm-hmm. you wrote about uh, you wrote about contact hypothesis, mm-hmm. which is nice. Uh, a nice. We're here in the basement laboratory of Queens College Media <laughs> Studies Master's Program, so it's a good. That's a good thing to talk about. You know, the the experiments that were done that when people experienced live the people that they didn't like, they actually started to be fine with them. Yeah, and there were hundreds and hundreds of these studies supporting the contact hypothesis, and it's basically at one level accepted as gospel truth. When people have a positive interaction with somebody they're different from, possibly even somebody they they dislike as a category, they become more tolerant, they become more individually open to that person, also open to the, the category they think that person belongs to. And then you think about it, and if that's true, it didn't really work as well as you might think. And so finally, recently, some researchers noticed that, and they went back and did a meta-study of all of these hundreds of studies, and then they ran some experiments of their own. And what they found was that no one had paid any attention to the impact of a negative experience. It was all focused on the role of positive experiences. Turns out, a negative experience weighs more. It's very, very heavy and hard to overcome. So one of the things that I advocate is we just need a tremendous density of positive experiences. And that's one of the collective things that you're doing when you have a good interaction with a stranger. I mean, it's funny. It almost it almost sounds like the the customer experience of human to human contact, you know, because <laughs> marketers will always say, you know, oh, people need like seven positive experiences with your brand in order to become loyal. But just one, you know, in order right. to tweet something bad about you and right. then they'll need seven good ones to come back. I mean, it's sort of that. It's like, how do we sell people on people, you know, to sell people on on contact? You know, oh, I had I talked to a girl and she was mean to me. I'm not going to talk to any more girls. Right. You know. That happens. Yeah. Well, it takes a few years to get poor over little boys. Poor little boys. <laughs> well, poor little anybody. It's making me very sad that you compared it to the marketplace, though. It's not my favorite analogy. Well, it's not your favorite analogy, but the marketers, but for all their problems, the marketers have done more research. I mean, they've paid for more of this research than yeah. anybody else. No, you're absolutely you know? right. You know, and we might as well use their what they've learned to the betterment of humanity rather than just... That is... It's, it's further isolation. Yes, I agree. But so... Clearly, it's in the it's in the market's interest and the power that powers that be's interest to keep us disconnected and afraid. You know, so Amazon Turks who can't 
see one another, are less likely to forge solidarity and power than right. people who are on the assembly line next to each other, looking into each other's eyes and going, this really sucks, doesn't yes. it? <laughs> you know? Yes, absolutely. So do you see ways in which our our society, our experiences seem engineered to uh, discourage the sorts of contact that you're asking us to make? I do, although I hesitate to get into the idea that things are engineered quite so deliberately mm-hmm. because I feel like that engineering almost evolves and reinforces itself. And I don't think that there are nefarious people in small rooms making decisions right. that um, – but like I said, it's not in the interest of the power structure for any of this to happen. It wasn't in the interests of the power structure for the people next to each other in the assembly lines to have contact. So insofar as it's possible, yes, I think that divisiveness is encouraged. I guess what you're saying, though, is that it's less conspiratorial than almost bureaucratic, almost systematized isolation. That's the way I look at it. But, you know, if we had a longer conversation, you might be able to convince me that it's conspiratorial. Well, I'm not, I don't even believe it's conspiracy. I think they're too stupid um, <laughs> right, to conspire right. that well. But I but I do know, you know, we live in a world where uh, I see teenagers expending more energy to get a hold of uh, uh, Internet porn than to connect with a woman. Right. You know, and that's uh, uh, and it's not because the Internet porn society is trying to. Correct. You know, Correct. Well, it's I mean, it's hit on something. All of the ability that we have to connect online has hit on the fact that it's a risk to try to connect with people in person. You may be rejected. You, As I said, you may be looked at like you're a little weird. It's interesting because it's a, I mean, if you look at sort of state-of-the-art uh, social hacking, 21st digital century, you know, on the one hand, you'll have people say developing something like a blockchain, a Bitcoin blockchain. And you go, well, all oh, it's going to restore the economy and power and all that. This is a friggin' crypto anonymous most depersonalized, dehumanized form of money exchange ever. You don't even stick a dollar in someone's hand. It's, right. They don't even know. You don't even. You stick a nothing in somebody's hand that you don't even know if they're a person and right. God knows what. You know, so, and that's where there's so much focus on that as if that's going to be our power. And you're coming back with saying, no, 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 no. What we really have to do here, well, not no, but, you know, gig is in. You know, God bless with what you're yes. doing. But maybe the thing we should focus on now is this sort of elemental steps towards how do you how do you foster human connection but there are lots of sort of disconnected uh, you know mediated by technology efforts to to help people assemble right and so even there's I'm gonna forget the name of it but I could dig it up but there's essentially like a diner's union for people to support the $15 an hour wage for food workers and to protest against bad working conditions for women. And that's cool. And I don't have to be connected to the other diners, although it would probably be awesome to have a meeting and find out who they are. Mm -hmm. But I have to feel connected to somebody as an individual. And so a lot of times the way that people find out about these things is through something that really connects you empathetically to what it's like to be that person. So my crazy thought, yeah, it was that, not to get like, you know, Deschardins or somebody like that, but that, you know, 
a lot of a lot of us in the early internet days and in the early rave era really believed that humanity was somehow coming together into something bigger and better. You know, I mean, I know it sounds, it's a primitive way of saying it, but that we're all cells in some bigger organism and we're going to achieve this other thing. Yeah. I mean, it feels like, and, and, and we had grand plans on how to do it on a mass scale. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me, in my most optimistic reading of your work, that you're saying, yeah, we can do that. We actually can do this, but just do it one little connection at a time, that it's happening on a human scale rather than on a some giant network scale. That is what I think. And as an early Internet person, I'm sad to say that, to turn away from that sort of promise. I think that it's about them happening at the same time that really gives it the most promise of the ability of people on the Internet to organize, to share, to communicate, And then the very individual human relationships that expand your idea of who counts as human, of what kind of lives people have, of what kinds of connections they're able to and not able to have, what it's like to live in the places that you live with people who aren't like you. All of those things in combination with the great promise of the Internet, then there's a we have a slim chance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a better, easier and more enjoyable life strategy than what you see. Most people are spending their time and energy and technology attempting to insulate themselves from a world that they're afraid of. And what you're saying is, no, 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 maybe you should spend your time and energy connecting with that world in a real and organic way so that you're not afraid of it in the first place. I totally agree. And the other thing I want to emphasize is I'm not actually talking about making friends. (laughs) I mean, you could do that. That's great. I'm just talking about this like very simple momentary human acknowledgement, possibly a conversation that flows out of it. I've had so many conversations that are engraved in me that are with people I will never see again. I don't, you know, there's a lot of things I don't remember about them, but I remember things that they said and the feeling that I got from talking to them. Yeah, there's this uh, one of those Dalai Lama speeches wherever where he's talking about going through the world as if you remember everybody from a past life. Ooh. Each person is just, oh, right, you were probably five centuries ago and you were... Oh, and you were my pet. Yeah, but if you treat everybody like that, these people that you've seen before and are going to see again in some it kind of changes the whole frame. And then mm-hmm. you walk around the world with different endorphins going through your body. And... Yeah, I think it's true. I also have days where I don't want to talk to anybody and I don't want it to come off like I think everybody should walk around every single day with their eyes open, making eye contact, acknowledging people, talking to them like, it's okay if you actually just want to look at your phone one day. That's a whole different way of relating to the world that has its own beauty and benefits. Do you start get sad sometimes? I do. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. I guess because you won't come out then. So right. we only see you in right. this mode. Right. But that's, a, you're, again, appropriateness. Your time, you, you, you do what's appropriate to each moment and, yeah. uh, and move on. Well, you are just such an exemplary human. You know, it's, it's, it's fun to have you in my life and definitely fun to have you on Team Human. Thank so, you. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for writing writing this book. Thanks for having me and for saying such nice things. (laughs) Thanks for joining Team Human. If you want us on the radio, let us know. Introduce us to your favorite station manager. 
Terrestrial radio is the bomb, connecting real people in time and space. There's nothing like it. And I long for Team Human to have a physical and temporal footprint. So let's make that happen. Email us at Stephen, that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at teamhuman.fm. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Special thanks to Zago, whose support helped us launch Team Human. They designed our logo, helped me with the visual design and website. Thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for sharing the music you heard on today's show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.